0: Hi everyone and welcome to Exploring the Midwest. My name is Jodi and I will be your guide as we chat with incredible people across the 13 Midwestern states and discover all the amazing things there are to see and do. I hope you enjoy our summer topics and I invite you to reach out to me at any time with topic ideas or destinations, attractions or even people that you think I should know about. You can click through the show notes and leave a comment or connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Jody Halstead. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming again to the Exploring the Midwest podcast. This month, we are talking about quirky museums, and today we are going to delve into medicine. Now, modern medicine is really a pretty incredible Uh, an incredible thing. And just thinking about how we got this far and seeing where we've come from is it's not only kind of a blast to, to the mind, but it's almost one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, how did we get from here to there? And today I'm joined by Sarah Halter, who is the executive director at the Indiana Medical History Museum. And we are going to talk about this incredibly interesting place in Indianapolis. So Sarah, Hello. thank you. Thank you. So when you step into the Indiana Medical History Museum, it really is like you've stepped back in time. Can you tell us the history of, of the, well it's not, not so much a building as an in, entire, I don't know, it, it's a whole lot of buildings, right?
1: Right, well the museum is just two of the buildings. Um, we have a uh, one main building and then sort of a, a little annex. So um, the the whole grounds were Central State Hospital, which opened in 1848 as the Indiana Hospital for the Insane. And it was the first state mental hospital in Indiana. It opened in line with the ideas of the moral treatment movement. So this idea that uh, fresh air and sunshine and uh you know, certain types of architecture and very structured daily lives were all kind of therapeutic and it was kind of getting away from, from the idea that uh, was previously dominant that uh, people with mental illnesses were just innately bad, that they were being punished by God for moral failings, or that they just were beyond hope and unworthy of help. It it sort of uh, began to replace the asylum system that came before it, where where people were really just confined, almost like prisoners. and, And the idea was to keep people out of sight and out of mind. And this this new uh, trend in, in what we now call psychiatry at the time uh, began to look at mental illness as just that an illness. So these are these are things that are wrong with people, like a, like an illness. We can study them and better understand them and and offer treatment and improve living conditions and help people to get better. So uh, the hospital opened with all of these. Um, sort of lofty goals of, of, you know, curing eight or nine patients out of 10 that, you know, they had really high hopes and were pretty confident, Um, but because they lacked an understanding of the diseases that that the people there suffered from, there really wasn't a whole lot that they could do other than provide comforts for them. which is a a huge step in the right direction, of course. Um, But what they found was that people people were spending many years, sometimes their whole lives in these institutions. Mm. They weren't getting better quickly, if at all. And so what began to happen was the hospital would fill up with patients who weren't likely to leave anytime soon, new beds were needed. And so another hospital would open up somewhere else in the state. And and by the 1880s and 90s, they were just popping up everywhere, these massive institutions. Uh, they, they were having a lot of problems with um, you know, lack of funds, uh, but also things like mismanagement of funds and, uh, you know, political cronyism and, and all these problems that led to uh, cases of abuse and neglect as well. And so there were there were a lot of problems. And in 1893, the superintendent of the hospital, Dr. George F. Edenharder, had this crazy idea that, um, you know, we, we could study these diseases like we do other diseases, learn what causes them and how to treat them. And then not only can we improve outcomes for patients, which was really was his primary goal, but we could also save the state of Indiana a lot of money in the long run by eliminating this constant need for new hospitals. So our building uh, was the pathological department of the hospital. We now call it the old pathology building, and it opened in 1896 as a cutting-edge research facility that was dedicated to, to just that, studying these physical causes of mental diseases like tumors and lesions and circulatory problems, infections, things like that, and then finding treatments for them or even preventative measures. And so the the sort of dual purposes of education and research uh, really were, were throughout the building in all of the laboratories there. Then in 1968, the laboratory closed as part of the hospital. With all of that original stuff intact. They never really had any money to modernize <laughs> over the years. Yeah, they were getting national attention when they opened for how, how modern they were, but things quickly became obsolete and there was no money to upgrade things. And so in 1968, it still had most of the original furnishings, equipment, specimens, records, all of that was still there. And so within a year, it just reopened as a museum.
0: Oh, wow. So it, it turned from being a working laboratory to a museum, just almost overnight.
1: Yeah, okay. kind of in the grand scheme of things, it seemed that way overnight. <laughs> yeah. There was very little time in between for, oh. for all of that incredible historic stuff to be lost or sold mm-hmm. or uh, destroyed. And so it just sort of, sort of
0: reopened as it was. That is fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of procedures took place um, in that in that building in the old pathology building would people come in for testings and treatments or was it more a a working laboratory with like a cadaver and and things that of of people who had already passed how did that work
1: well it was it was mostly a research laboratory that had some some clinical functions as well so uh they the, the procedure they were primarily doing would have been autopsy. So for the most part, patients would not have entered that building until after they passed away. And if there was permission to do the autopsy, because the family gave permission or because the person was a ward of the state, uh, they they did autopsies there, kind of. Um, trying to, to match the symptoms that the patient exhibited in life with what they found going on inside the central nervous system primarily, but other body systems as well. Um, and, and trying to, to sort of match things up and then looking uh, for patterns over time. So they did uh, they did autopsies in the building. They did a lot of microscopy. So looking at tissue samples under the microscope, a lot of chemical experiments and things like that. But then it was also uh, a clinical lab as well. So doctors who were working with live patients, living patients in the hospital, uh, would bring you know various body fluids for analysis, testing for different kinds of diseases and things like that. You know, this was a hospital where um, you know it was, it was pretty much a community unto itself. It quickly grew and, and became this little, almost like a little town. And uh, you know these were. People who, who lived on the grounds, and so they had other uh, you know medical problems in addition to their mental diseases, and so you know infectious diseases, public health issues, things like that were all concerns. And there were a lot of uh, of the staff and, and physicians who lived on the grounds as well up until the mid 20th century. So these were, these were all people who who had uh, you know
0: need for various medical testing. So wow, that is so interesting. Now. When people are planning to visit um, the Indiana Medical History Museum, what do they need to know before they visit? Are there anything, is there anything they need to keep in mind um, prior to their visit or maybe during their tour? Because I know that a lot of the time, it's very easy to look at things with our current frame of mind without thinking how things might have been at the time. And we can go, well, that was heinous. But yeah, you know, it's almost like looking back at things through rose-colored glasses. So are there any things that people might want to keep in mind before a visit?
1: Well, um, some logistical things that you should keep in mind are that right, well, right now because of the pandemic, we're only open by appointment. So we do need to know in advance that you're coming. Uh, you can call the museum or visit our website to to request an appointment. The tours are about an hour long. Um, we also have a medicinal plant garden and a native tree arboretum that are um, both accessible for free anytime during daylight hours, so that, that's something to keep in mind as well. And then, uh, you know, as you're, as you're touring through the building, I think, um, well, what, what I think of uh, is how, you um, how much things have changed, and yet how little they've changed at the same time. You know, a lot of a lot of the concepts haven't changed. What's different now is the technology. Um, but then, you know, in other ways, things have just kind of been revolutionized. Like, you know, when when the laboratory was open and functioning, you know, medical humanities wasn't a thing that people thought about. You know, there there weren't um, as many uh, ways that that um, the, the work was sort of being overseen um, and regulated. So, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, informed consent wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like a lot, a lot of things have changed really dramatically, and some things haven't at all. And so, I think that's interesting. Um, and and you're right. You know, there there are a lot of things that happened that uh, you know were at the time considered perfectly okay things. Um, and then you know there were there were things that were not okay even at the time too the allegations of abuse and neglect many of which were you know were true they were not unfounded allegations and so you know those those are things that are are never okay no matter what time period you're looking at and so uh, I, yeah I think it's both like you know understanding the the cultural and social and economic and political context of the time but also um, I, th- I think that just because, uh, you know, somebody thought it was okay in the past doesn't mean that we have to, to look at it that way, I guess, is what I would say. And, and I think a lot of, uh, you know, it, medical history is full of, you know, heroism and inspiration, but it's also kind of dark sometimes. There, there are some terrible things happen throughout medical history, and I think it's important to remember both, um, and I think that, that that's relevant. To a lot of people now, more than ever, perhaps, and and I would say that um, you know th- these stories that we that we share, um, I think I think maybe could be sort of jumping off points for, for conversations that that we should be having about about medicine and and access and all of those things. It's it's all very relevant today.
0: Now I definitely want to talk about those stories that you share. Um, but before we do that, when people do visit, what are they going to see and experience within that old pathology building? What kind of things can they expect to, you know, d- to see and and uh, learn about?
1: Well, uh, as you already mentioned, it's very much like stepping back in time. Uh, we We only do guided tours of the building because this isn't, Sort of a traditional museum where things are behind glass or behind ropes. It's, it's a very immersive experience, and you really do feel like you're um, kind of kind of jumping into a time capsule. It's it's um, sometimes it's jarring even, and so uh, you know you you'll come in, uh, you'll see all of the Victorian influence. the, the building opened in the eighteen nineties, and and it has um, you know all of all of the sort of victorian elements you would expect from a building of that time with you know woodwork that's unnecessarily ornate <laughs> Uh, You know, things like that, fancy parlor for greeting people where you would leave a calling card, that sort of thing. The the book with the calling cards is even still there. Um, And then uh, you'll pass through uh, what we call the anatomical museum. It's the only space in the building that was intended to be a museum from the very beginning, and it's where the specimen collection is. And and you'll pass through that into uh, a large surgical amphitheater, which is where they did did the tour to the, uh, the autopsies originally and so we start in there and then we sort of tour through all of the the you know late victorian era labs and you know bacteriology chemistry um you know there's a chemical storage room where they were storing and mixing chemicals we have a, a fancy library a medical library that they had there from the beginning and then also um you know, spaces like a photography studio, which you maybe wouldn't associate with a medical facility, but uh, there's there's a lot of different different kinds of spaces, and it's all very, um, very immersive. It's, it's a neat experience. I love to watch people
0: uh, kind of encounter that for the first time. That does sound just incredibly fascinating to to walk through and, you know, think about the things that that took place and how they did things and maybe even the discoveries is is there um, during the tour? Do they talk about the things that that were figured out that that have led to something that was maybe a big breakthrough? Is that is that something that's included? That yeah, well, learned? we
1: talk about some of the research that was done there. In particular, um, we talk about malaria therapy, which was sort of the hospital's claim to fame. Um, by the time it was sort of reaching its it's peak, uh, penicillin was becoming available, so I, I wouldn't say it changed the world necessarily, uh, but for a brief time, it had that potential. Um, one of the leading causes of institutionalization at the time was tertiary syphilis, and there were no treatments for that. The the big... Mm-hmm. Um, modern miracle drug, Salversan 606, which was the first uh, real cure for syphilis, was not uh, an option for neurosyphilis because it couldn't penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And so they they got creative and, and essentially uh, what developed was what we call malaria therapy. They were using one infectious and potentially deadly disease to treat another one that was uh, most certainly deadly. <laughs> So, you know, infecting the patient with a, a weak strain of malaria to induce high fevers, letting them run through cycles of fever to kill off the spirochete inside the brain. That's that's what they thought was happening and anyhow. Um, and then, uh, you know, treating it with quinine, which was, you know, mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty readily available. Malaria was one of the few uh, infectious diseases at that time that could be treated because of quinine. So, uh, you know, they, they did that pretty extensively and had a lot of success with that treatment. And then when the U.S. Public Health Service began looking into
0: penicillin, they
1: participated in, in those trials.
0: Fascinating. Now, you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago about the stories that are shared there at the Central State Hospital. And I would love to hear more about those because that is, it's, it's one of those things that, I don't know, it almost gives you this hope, but then it also opens up the history. And I really love kind of the two things together.
1: Yeah, I, I'd love to talk about this project and, and the specimens themselves. So, uh, you yeah, know, I've been at the museum in various capacities uh, for, I don't know, close to 15 years now. And during that time, uh, you know, we, we've sort of shifted. Um, in the last five or six years, especially, we've really um, tried to focus more on, the patients and their stories. For a long time, the interpretation, uh, though accurate, really focused on the doctors who were mostly white men. There weren't a lot of women represented. There weren't a lot of people of color or or other other minority groups. Uh, You know, it talked it talks about the architecture and the science and all of those things, which are really important parts of the story, but they're not the complete story. And what was missing was the patient perspective. So we've done a lot to try to draw more attention to the patients themselves and their experiences. And we have this specimen collection in, in, our, in our building. This was uh, part of the lab and, and it sort of became part of the museum when we became a museum. So it's always been there but they're specimens from from patients who were autopsied in the building. So these are things um, that represent the different physical causes of mental diseases that they were studying in the building and they were put on display so that students and physicians could come and and look at these examples and learn about these diseases and and sort of continue their education that way. And the labels that that we had next to them were, they were copies of the original information that was very clinical. They were very clinical descriptions of tumors and lesions. They really didn't give you any sense that it was a person being discussed in the label. There was just no humanity there. And uh, you, we wanted we wanted people to recognize the humanity in these specimens and to be able to connect with them on a deeper level and, and hopefully even to, um, you know, you use these stories to foster compassion and respect for the patients. These are, you know, people who were a very vulnerable population. They were often uh, forgotten or intentionally ignored. They were ostracized frequently, you know, from their families and communities. And so, uh, remembering them and their stories was really important to us. So we uh, we started doing research in 2015 to learn more about who each of these individuals were, how they became institutionalized, what their symptoms were, and how those symptoms impacted their daily life, uh, how they became institutionalized, uh, what their experience was like at the hospital, and, and how their families reacted as well. So we unveiled this new reinterpretation of the specimens, which does include the original labels as well, because we we recognize that that's also very valuable information, um, but you see them side by side now next to each of the specimen jars. So that it tells the clinical story and then the human story of each of, of the patients that are represented there.
0: That I, I don't know that just like you said, it humanizes it. And I just feel like that it's almost that turning point again, another turning point in. Uh, medical history, where we have gone from the clinical to realizing that there is a full human, and it—you know—the full story of it, not just the the focus. And I absolutely love that. I think that that makes it so much more personal for people who are visiting. Thank you. I—it's
1: been really—it's um, been really important for us, but also. Um, very rewarding the whole experience you know learning about these folks and um and telling their stories in a way that hadn't been done before it's it's been very rewarding
0: so sarah where can people get more information to plan their visit to the uh the medical history museum and maybe learn more about what you're doing there
1: well, our website is a great place to start, www.imhm.org. Uh, you can find information about the tours and right now about some of the the restriction and restrictions and precautions related to COVID that are in place. Um, but you can also find a lot of uh, digital content. You can find recordings of our past events. You can find our blog series there, and some online exhibits, including the rehumanizing the specimens, which we are adding to frequently. Um, so you can you can find all of that there on our website. Uh, all the news and uh, upcoming event announcements and that sort of thing, and then you can also follow us on social media. We're very active on Facebook and Twitter, and we're uh, we're on Instagram as well now. So you can you can find those links on our website or just just Google it. Um, but but we we post a lot of that information there as well as other kind of relevant
0: topics. Excellent, and so the Indiana. Um, Medical History Museum is located in Indianapolis, which is obviously a very large city with a lot to do. And the Visit Indy website has loads and loads of information. But if people are planning to include you in their itinerary, is there anything nearby, near to you that you think that would be a good thing to add, a good stop, a good um, addition to their itinerary?
1: Well, of course, I am inclined to to suggest that everyone visit all the museums. Indianapolis has just a ton of really great museums. Uh, you know, everybody knows about the Children's Museum in Connor Prairie, but there are a lot of smaller institutions that are definitely worth visiting. Um, two of my favorites are the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies, at IUPUI, which has a recreation of Ray Bradbury's office with his actual stuff in it. It's, it's sort of like our building in that sense. It's, it's, it's not the original space, but it's the original stuff. Um, And then the the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is also a great one. Uh, I also love the Idlejork Museum. It's uh, Native Americans and Western Art. It's always been one of my favorites. uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure all the cool kids had their 13th birthday party there too. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's definitely worth checking out right on the canal. And then this time of year, I, I think uh, you should definitely check out the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum as well. Or if you know if you're, if you're into racing or just cars or whatever, it's a great place. They have a really neat collection. So oh
0: those are great I can go tips. on. <laughs> those are great tips. and Indianapolis just has so, so much to do and adding the Indiana Medical History Museum is just one more thing to really make that trip to Indianapolis unique. So Sarah, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, for uh, offering more information about this really interesting, I don't know that quirky is really the right word for your museum, but so fascinating and so interesting and definitely someplace worth considering when you're visiting Indianapolis.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app or take a screenshot and tag me in your Instagram stories at Jody Halstead.